Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. We all experience digestive upset. How are you supposed to know the difference between a temporary inconvenience and a digestive disorder? Understanding, diagnosing, and treating GI issues. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your Prairie Doc host this evening. Tonight's episode is part of our 21st season, providing health information based on science, built on trust. We continue to provide trusted health information this evening as we discuss GI issues. Joining us to address this topic is Dr. Christina Hill Jensen from Avera Medical Group Gastroenterology. Welcome and thank you for joining us tonight in the studio here in Brookings on the campus of South Dakota State University. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you ended up sure. practicing in South Dakota. Absolutely. I'm a Brookings native, although I did go to school, college at the other university. Um, so I went to USD for undergrad and medical school. I did my internal medicine training at Tulane University, started my GI specialty training. Um, at Tulane, but was interrupted by Hurricane Katrina, and I ended up at the University of Iowa, and after training, um, went directly to Sioux Falls, came back home, and I've been with Avera Medical Group for 15 years now. That's wonderful. Yeah. So it's, it's always nice to have you back up in Brookings. Maybe have to go to Nick's Hamburgers after this. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Brookings is a great place. Yes. So well, wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, I'm so excited to talk about GI issues because mm -hmm. there is a plethora of things we can talk about. So definitely uh, we'll have lots of things from our audience so before we start our conversation we invite you our audience to submit your questions about GI concerns viewers can contact us one of three ways call 1-888-376-6225 send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page we will work to answer as many of your questions as possible, given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we do not get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of this program. Your question will still remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your question. So lots of things to talk about from basically the mouth to your bottom and, and pretty much everything that connects those two uh, openings. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess we could get started talking about things up top. Reflux yes. disease. Oh, so, you know, common. something I see every day and um, lots of patients will come into the office saying, you know, I'm taking Tums or I've tried that purple pill a couple times. And so, you know, it's really looking for the warning signs. People who struggle with problems with swallowing, 
blood in the stool, unexplained weight loss, those are the, the, the times that a person needs to get into that physician right away. But you know, healthy eating habits, smaller meals, um, weight loss, all those things can help those lifestyle modifications to help reflux on your own. But if you try the purple pill, you try Pepsid, you're popping Tums for more than a couple weeks, please go into your primary care physician and he or she will kind of put you on the right path and evaluate and make sure you don't have any warning signs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those medications that we can get over the counter mm -hmm. now did start as prescription only. Absolutely. And thankfully they're very safe to use. Although I would still say if you're going to use any type of over-the-counter medication long-term, please clear it with your primary care physician because sometimes they do have things that we have to monitor. For instance, on medicines like Prilosec or Nexium, we check your, your kidney function once a year or so. So there are a few things that we, we need to kind of you know, do our housekeeping on, but they are safe to use and very effective now. Definitely. So, and with um, those acid reducer medications, how do they work? How do they help so, get rid of reflux? So, um, proton pump inhibitors block three different pathways that um, acid is made. So, acid provides two dramatic effects in our body. Number one, it starts helping digestion. Two, it actually protects us against parasites. So, we need acid to a certain extent. Uh, the bottom of our esophagus can open, and sometimes that uh, will get some reflux into the, the bottom of the esophagus. So we try to prevent acid from coming up. So these proton pump inhibitors will block um, the proton pump, the final pathway of acid production. And so when we eat meals, maybe larger meals, where we're getting a lot of acid production, these medicines are going to work to decrease that extra acid, allowing the esophagus to heal if you have any type of ulceration, allowing that to heal up as well. And if people have kind of this chronic reflux over time and it's not properly treated, what are the dangers or problems with that? Sure, we worry that it could then change um, the lining of the esophagus. The first transition is something called Barrett's esophagus. So this, I look at the esophagus and that nice smooth transition from esophagus to stomach is no longer crisp, it becomes really ragged and then I would biopsy or sample that area and we would find precancerous cells there. So now we have to start following up that patient very carefully because we do worry about the worst, which would be an esophageal cancer. And we do see it, men over the age of 60, smoke and drink, reflux, those are, are the patients we really worry about. Although we were chatting, you, you can see it, unfortunately, Younger. in others, yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So smoking, does that uh, kind of, we know smoking's bad for lungs, but we never really talk about it for, oh. for stomach, bladder. I mean, smoking affects more than just the lungs. Absolutely. So nicotine exposure, alcohol, these are things that are modifiable risk factors. And yes, esophageal cancer, stomach cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer. So let's get rid of that from our, our lifestyle. Let's minimize it. Um, try not to drink more than seven alcoholic beverages per week. Those are our new guidelines because otherwise it does increase that risk of, of all of those uh, uh, tumors that I just discussed and, and regions for cancer. Wonderful. Well, callers are definitely coming in with lots of questions here. So a uh, caller from Yankton has a family member who experiences spontaneous vomiting frequently. What could this be caused by? Mm, there's a lot of reasons. We would first of all worry, is there a problem with the anatomy on the inside of the, the stomach? Is there what we call gastric outlet obstruction? Younger people will have something called rumination syndrome where they'll swallow food and then it'll, up it will come. Um, we see some patients who have a lot of inflammation, irritation, they will vomit. 
And then now with the use of some uh, medical marijuana, we see something called hyperemesis gravidarum. So these patients are having frequent vomiting related to, um, to marijuana use. So um, pregnancy women, you know, they are vomiting, another thing, but um, there can be a lot of different reasons. So that person, I would, I would definitely say he or she needs to be evaluated by a physician. Yeah. And do you do much with like cyclic vomiting? Syndrome? Yes, yes, say, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So that's what I what was yeah. going with that. Absolutely. So yeah, unfortunately, we do see that uh, cyclic vomiting syndrome with our patients on, on marijuana. Um, and that can be a, a challenge as well, because um, unfortunately, marijuana slows down the way our, our stomachs empty and then acid builds up, food builds up, and, and patients will vomit. Mm -hmm. And diabetes, too, can also slow gastric empty. Yes, absolutely, especially yeah. if you've been a diabetic for more than 10 years and you have signs of neuropathy or retinopathy. Mm -hmm. These are patients we worry about nerve ending damage that can affect the way our, our stomachs empty. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, all right, next question. A caller from Sioux Falls asked, I always get my colonoscopies as required by my insurance. I've had no issues thus far. Do I need to keep getting them? Well, our new guidelines suggest yes, <laughs> until age 80 to 85. We used to say about 75 to 80, but we now know that continuing colon cancer screening to at least age 80 is very important. Um, colon cancer is still, I think, the top three killer uh, um, cancer-related deaths in, in the country, so it's still a very real thing. Um, one out of 25 women will end up with colon cancer, one out of 22 men. So, I mean, these are real numbers and it's a real threat. So. Yes, you should keep going. There are other ways for colon cancer screening as well if you're tired of a colonoscopy, but uh, as we discussed, the colon cancer screening gold standard is a colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So, and is there a reason that they stop at 80, 85? It's not that these people can't get cancer. Well, we would just say that we would have to look at that person individually. At age 80 or 85, unfortunately, mortality, we're going to probably die in the next 10 years, or that patient may not be a very good surgical risk. So if we found a cancer, would he or she even survive um, surgery to remove that, that cancer? Um, so we have to weigh the benefit risks, and it's a good discussion to have with your primary care provider. And that 10 years is because colon cancer is fairly slow growing. It is very slow growing. We know the progression typically is from that small polyp, kind of a mushroom-like growth, um, into something larger where it will start to invade the lining of the colon. Those uh, cells, unfortunately, will kind of go haywire and turn into cancer. All right, good. Uh, another caller from Sioux Falls says, what is the best medication to stop the itching with hemorrhoids? So now we've hit the, the top to the bottom. <laughs> um, you know, uh, medications like a hydrocortisone, a mild steroid can help. Um, those are over the counter at your good old fashioned preparation age. Uh, sits baths can help with some of that, witch hazel wipes, um, keeping stools regular, trying to prevent this from happening. Um, very severe cases, we do have more prescription type medication as well, but I would start with the basics. Yep, and, and definitely positioning on, mm -hmm. on the stool, not mm -hmm. sitting there for a half hour straining. I mean, that definitely can Absolutely. worsen. Absolutely. Yeah, good. All right, well, a caller from Rapid City is wondering if the doctors recommend taking the medication, um, they said Treon, I'm wondering if they're meaning Creon, to increase enzymes in the pancreas. So uh, Creon is a pancreatic enzyme replacement and it's a very specialized medication and really it's only indicated for those who have what is called chronic pancreatitis. Um, these are people who struggle with malabsorption, stools would float, smelly, foul, oily stools. Um, so if you have chronic pancreatitis, yes, it's absolutely necessary to help um, digest food. Now. If you just struggle with a little bit of tummy problems, stomach upset, pancreatic enzymes have no role. 
Okay. Mm -hmm. So it, it's a nice thing when you need it. Mm -hmm. If you don't need it, you're just spending a lot of money for something that's not going to exactly. give you much of a benefit. All right. So, um, speaking of foods, are there any special foods to avoid with diverticulosis to prevent that diverticulitis from happening? So uh, this is a big <clears throat> one because there's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm -hmm. um, until about 10 years ago, people would say avoid nuts, seeds, or popcorn. They looked at over 47,000 patients who'd had diverticulitis and they have found no effect with any type of specific food causing recurrent bouts of diverticulitis. So the answer is no. So if you somebody tells you no nuts, seeds, or popcorn, don't listen to them. Say that's old data. Old, old. What we do tell patients, stay active, keep mm -hmm. your weight down, um, and keep stools regular with the use of fiber. Okay. Is there a, something that tends to cause that to happen? I mean, we always talk about stuff getting stuck in those pockets, but... We don't know. We, we would suppose, I think we think that it's a slowing of the motility of the colon, possibly causing something to get hung up there and creating that micro abscess um, that could cause pain, fever. Um, just because you have pain on the left side does not mean you have diverticulitis. And so again, you, you really do need to be assessed by your, your physician. Because those diverticulars can be anywhere in the colon. Yeah. Just it tends to be a lot on the left side in that sigmoid colon. Yeah. It seems to be a more common. In, yeah, in North America, on the left side of the colon. If you're where in Asia, it's actually more so on the right side. So Interesting. Mm -hmm. So, And then everyone, the appendix on the right, mm -hmm. yeah, and a lot of times diverticula on the left. So. Yes. But like you said, not always. There's exceptions to every rule. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, patient says they had C. diff, and why does it come back so easily? Uh, should we use probiotics to treat it or prevent it? And uh, why is it increasing? It seems to be increasing. They're hearing a lot more about this. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, there um, we see a lot of C. diff. Mm -hmm. It can be out in the community as well, so it, it's out there. Um, and unfortunately, we're now also having resistance to um, some of the more typical antibiotics we use to treat. So it's becoming more of a challenge to treat. It can be very difficult to get rid of because it can live on surfaces for about 48 hours. Mm. So we have patients, we say, go home, you'll do fine. And perhaps they're not cleaning sheets with bleach every night, cleaning toilets with bleach. You have to be extremely cautious at home. And in some cases, our own body just can't kick that infection. Um, so, yeah, it, it can be a big challenge where I, I come in after the infectious disease do doctors will take care of those patients. We actually are doing something called a fecal transplant, mm -hmm. stool transplant. So we get a healthy donor and I will put healthy stool inside the small bowel and colon of that individual. And it works wonderfully. Oh, it does. Yeah, we have like a 93% success rate um, throughout the country. So there are, of course, risks involved with doing anything like that, but it works very well. Mm -hmm. And how is that fecal transplant done? I know there's a couple of different ways. The, there are. I mean, in a perfect world, mm -hmm. right, we would take a, a poop pill <laughs> um, that we would just pop and then get that done, but it's not there yet. So it is actually a colonoscopy, and then I will instill um, some stool uh, via an accessory channel into the patient's small bowel and colon. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I know that's actually some people's jobs is to provide that sample, like donating blood, donating plasma, you can donate stool if you are a qualified Yeah, I, I, you know, we, we joke about that, but um, for most facilities in the Midwest, we will end up having a family member mm -hmm. because we're pretty rigorous in our testing to ensure that the donor does not have C. diff or right. other infections. HIV, hepatitis. HIV, yes. And, goes, and the list goes on. So we, we do need a highly qualified donor. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. So, 
Okay, in 2021, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force updated recommendation age for the beginning of colon cancer screening to the age of 45. With the many different types of screening, it can be confusing to decide what screening is right for you. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower found more on this topic. Dr. Teresa Wee Trudeau is a general surgeon who performs colon cancer screenings in Brookings. She says the most common type of screening is a colonoscopy. The reason is, is because it is very sensitive and very specific for finding polyps as well as cancers. Um, polyps we're able to remove, so it can also be therapeutic in, as well as diagnostic. Other types of screenings include the FIT test, which uses antibodies to find blood in a person's stool, and Coligard, which screens a person's stool for colon cancer and precancers. Many of these tests depend on the comfort level of the patient. Not all people um, want to do a colonoscopy. <laughs> it does involve a prep, and so uh, it does put some people off, and so they've come up with some different options for people if they're truly against doing a colonoscopy. Dr. Wee Trudeau says the FIT test and Coligard are great because there is no prepping, but if they show up as positive for colon cancer detection, it ends up going to a colonoscopy. So it has more benefits to it. Uh, it has been shown to be more sensitive. And, um, but the drawback is that you have to have a colon prep beforehand. Prepping your colon is one of the biggest parts of a colon cancer screening. And the Miralax prep is a common preparation tactic that has undergone some changes. A few years ago, it was you take the whole bottle of Miralax and 64 ounces of fluid at one time in about two hours. Now, there's the other option of doing half of it at one time and then half of it about four or five hours right before, before the colonoscopy. Dr. Wee Trudeau also encourages eating foods with low fiber before a screening. We also recommend a low fiber diet for it prior to the colonoscopy because those are the things that aren't digested, fiber. Um, and so if you have a low fiber diet beforehand, even if it doesn't get cleared out, it should be to the point where we're able to suction it up when we're trying to look at things. But don't worry, they do knock the patients out for colonoscopies with anesthetics like propofol. Another option is propofol, which is very quick on and off and is titrated by anesthesia in real time as we're doing the procedure. And so um, people do really, really well with that one. So one of the things I like about colonoscopies is that they're both diagnostic and therapeutic. Can you kind of explain that to the audience, what, what I mean by that? Yeah, sure. So we will find precancerous polyps, but we will remove them. So this is truly a procedure where we are preventing colon cancer. You know, it's amazing. And thankfully, if we are doing the procedures early enough and um, we can find these cancers that 90% of people, when we find a cancer, they're going to live. We're going to cure colon cancer. And not all polyps are precancer. Some are just uh, kind of a benign overgrowth that's harmless. Um, does that kind of change how often you need to go back for your? Yeah, so if we find a polyp which is benign, we would go back to the normal standard, which is every 10 years. 
And then it based really on what that polyp looks like underneath the microscope and the number of polyps as well. So a patient who has more than three or five or 10 polyps and the size of the polyp, and typically one centimeter is kind of a, a guideline, um, then it will change how, when we're getting that patient back. Sometimes there are patients who we can't get all the polyp at once, we want a clear margin, so there are some exceptions to the rule, but most patients with polyps will usually see back three to five, and now even guidelines will say seven years as well. Okay, good. So, and then there are some people that have what's called like the familial polyposis, where they have Hundreds. Hundreds. And, and you can't take them all out. No, no. And it's really an amazing thing. It's, it's like a carpet, like mm -hmm. just full of polyps. And those patients are at high risk, and they know. Mm -hmm. um, it's an autosomal dominant, so your dad has it, you're going to get it. Mm -hmm. And so it's a matter of when that colon comes out. And that can be a hard decision. And so um, we have some in our office who see a lot of patients who have that. Um, but getting them to enroll, following up with surgeons, et cetera, is a very important thing at a young age. And by young age, I mean 18 or 21. So it's a big decision. Life will change. Um, but we are preventing cancer because that person will get cancer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember when I was in training, we had a family, and mm -hmm. all three siblings were undergoing their surgery at the same time just so they could support oh, each other. Oh, wow. So, but yeah, they were all, I think it was between like 18 and 20. 23 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they were they're like okay we're gonna solidarity we're gonna do it together and they're like we watched dad go through this now it's it's our turn good for so, them yeah. yeah so all right well back to viewer questions because they just keep coming because this is a great topic okay. all right uh, viewer says they've had gut pain for uh, 10 years ago and at that time their doctor prescribed some probiotics they're still taking it 10 days later or 10 years later daily is this a lifelong thing do they need to take them forever can they stop 10 years ago i would say yes probiotics today i say hmm um, so what's the difference? Well, we now have science. We have data which says that perhaps probiotics will work in maybe half of people with irritable bowel. So as with most medications, give it three months and see if it works. And if it works for you, that is okay. They are typically very safe <clears throat> to use. Sometimes they are expensive, so you have to kind of watch that. But unfortunately, they're not the panacea, cure-all for gut pain, belly pain diarrhea, constipation, irritable bowel that 10 years ago we all were hoping for. So I would say most patients do not require it. If it has worked for you, that is okay to take. But you might try to get off that and see how things go. And if they stop and it comes back, start back yeah, up. No problem. No, no, no harm, no foul. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, another gut pain. Uh, how do you tell if you're lactose intolerant or if it's something else? So lactose intolerance is extremely common. Out of Caucasians, 40% will lose the ability to really digest milk products. Um, we just lose the, the ability of our lactase enzyme to work. Um, so the easiest is avoid it, see how you do. The second easiest is um, lactate tablets. Take three every time you eat um, ice cream or a meal with dairy. But we also have testing, something called a breath test, where we will give you lactose sugar dissolved in water, you swallow that. And we can tell by the activity of the bacteria in your small intestine and the amount of hydrogen and methane they produce. And you will blow that off in, from your lungs and we collect it in a bag and we can actually measure hydrogen and methane if you're truly lactose intolerant or not. Um, so one, avoid it. Two, try lactate. If you want a definitive, come in and we have testing for that. 
That is fascinating. Yeah. Who knew you could diagnose something by breathing in a bag? Yeah, so. and the same is true with fructose intolerance. So fructose, fructose uh -huh. is a sugar found in fresh fruits and vegetables, but also in highly processed corn syrup, which oh. makes everything taste so good. Mm -hmm. And then we also have it for what's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth which is where that um, we have more bacteria in our small intestine mm -hmm. than we have human cells in our whole body. So we're just plumb full of bugs. And when those bugs become out of balance, people can have symptoms of diarrhea, bloat, discomfort. And so by testing for the activity of these um, bacterial cells and the bacteria, we can tell if you have what's called SIBO, or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Okay. And again, you're talk when we were talking about the C. diff and the fecal transplants, mm -hmm. that was to replace those healthy, normal bacteria, right? Yes. Where it's not the stool that's magically fixing things, it's the bacteria. It is the bacteria itself, which is in yeah, the stool for the C. diff. And yeah. so, and it's interesting, a lot of our patients with SIBO are those who had received antibiotics mm -hmm. for numerous years for XYZ, patients who've had scleroderma, some type of gastric bypass surgery, where there's stasis, where the gut is not moving okay. things through. Very interesting, all right. Well, a caller states that they had proton beam therapy for prostate cancer and now having a lot of mucus in his diarrhea. Should he be concerned? I would probably be evaluated by your local surgeon or gastroenterologist. There could be localized inflammation of the, the lining of the colon, sometimes a quick what we call flexible sigmoidoscopy, kind of a, a short scope where we can look and see. Um, there are um, entities where a person can also have bleeding as well due to some of that. If it's fresh off of the radiation, I would definitely follow up with your radiation oncologist and report those symptoms. Yeah, because you can get those radiation injuries, that radiation colitis. Absolutely, yeah. and we can treat that with special types of enemas. I even have a, a type of laser coagulation where we can cauterize those areas that can bleed as well. This is such a fun show. I'm learning so much. This is great. All right, a caller from Hitchcock, South Dakota asks, um, they have severe indigestion, has been taking omeprazole for many years, has had upper GIs done, but wonders, is, is there anything else that needs to be checked out? Well, I would definitely have an upper scope. So if, once you've had that upper scope and you've done okay, you've had those GIs, then I would say a few things. Number one, is it really reflux? Or do you have what's called a hypersensitive esophagus, or is this not even really reflux? And the way to test that is by measuring how much acid is coming up into the esophagus. And that's with a pH monitoring study. There's one that's a little bit older, it's a tube down your nose for 24 hours, but we can measure how much acid is coming up, how high it's coming up. We can also measure non-acid contents as well. An easier way is during one of our upper scopes, we can attach a little sensor to the bottom of the esophagus to also measure how much acid is coming up. So if we prove that you are having acid despite high dose medication, the next step would be, do we refer you on to a surgeon? And there are a lot of surgical options now for control of reflux. Um, one of the oldest that is still a very good surgery is called a Nissen, not a Nissan, a Nissen <laughs> fenoplication, where they take that top part of the stomach, they wrap it around the bottom of the esophagus to form that tight barrier, um, and that prevents acid from coming up. It works very effectively. However, after about 10 years, 30 to 50% of patients are back on medicines like proton pump inhibitors. A newer surgery is called a Lynx procedure. It's like a magnetic bracelet that's placed around the bottom of the uh, esophagus and it will just clamp things tight, prevent acid from coming up. And there are a few other um, surgical type surgeries that are, are coming about that um, we have a few surgeons in the region that are performing but are not FDA approved quite yet. 
Does that affect their ability to vomit then if yes. they're sick? You cannot vomit. Okay. Um, and with that Nissen, um, because the stomach grows when we eat it by about 30%, it stretches out. If it can't stretch out anymore, because that's the part of the, the stomach that's wrapped around, people will get bloated because the air has to go somewhere. And then they'll also have gas. So they can have gas bloat syndrome as well. So you can't vomit, you might have more flatulence, you might have more bloat after the surgery as well. Okay, sounds good. <clears throat> Another caller is wondering, is it okay to take Metamucil as a daily fiber supplement on a regular basis? Absolutely. Yes, sure. yeah, it's yes. a wonderful thing. Um, there are, if you don't like that gritty texture, there's Citrusel, that's mm -hmm. an orange flavor. There's Benefiber, these are all trade names, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, but they're all over the counter. Benefiber, you can mix in your water, your coffee, your oatmeal. There's even gummy bears that are mm -hmm. gummy fibers. So there's that option as well. You can have four after your, your dinner and it's mm -hmm. like dessert and you're getting your fiber. There you go. Any other ways to get like fiber naturally? Oh yeah, or, we, I mean, definitely. It, whole grains, mm -hmm. fresh fruits, vegetables, we recommend about 25 to 35 grams of uh, fiber per day. Um, you can yeah, Google it, it's all out there, but eating a very well-rounded diet, that old fashioned food pyramid, it, it's effective for mm -hmm. fiber. Yeah, and a lot of foods, they kind of take a lot of the fiber out when they're processing it. So the less processed foods, uh, I know one of my great mentors always said, shop around the outside of the grocery yeah. store. The more inner the aisles are, the more processed the foods are. If it looks more like it came from the garden, the better it is, you're gonna have more fiber in that. Absolutely, that's perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, okay, great. Well, developed in the early 1980s in Israel and patented later that decade in the United States, the pill camera has been around for a while, but it didn't catch steam until the 2000s. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer spoke with a Vera Medical Group to learn more. Stephanie Jansen is a certified medical assistant at the Avera GI Clinic in Sioux Falls who works with the pill camera. The pill camera is, you guessed it, a pill that holds a tiny camera and takes pictures of your GI tract and can last from hours to days depending on the body type. They come into the clinic in the morning. Uh, we have them put on either a belt or leads. Um, and then it gets connected to a box that they'll wear throughout the day that transmits the images from that capsule onto the box. And that box is what we use to download those images so that way the physician can see. The pill camera is a useful tool for finding ailments within the small intestine without conducting surgery. We can take a look at the esophagus and the stomach. Uh, and the large colon, but there's that whole small intestine that we just can't view uh, without uh, doing something like this, is, and which a camera that you swallow is just much better than having to go in surgically. Dr. Christina Hill Jensen is a gastroenterologist, and she is one of three at the GI clinic that collectively read the pill cams up to 50 times a month. Most commonly, the pill is used for finding obscure GI bleeding in the tract. Sometimes people will have ulceration, inflammation, even cancer that can bleed in the small bowel. The second reason we do this most commonly is looking for something called inflammatory bowel disease. And so this is specifically Crohn's disease, a disease that can cause patchy ulceration in the lining of the small intestine. The prep for the pill camera is simply fasting before and a couple hours after swallowing it to make sure it's in the intestines. 
So they do fast for a few more hours uh, and then they have a light lunch that they can have and some clear liquids that they can drink throughout the day. But once the capsule or once the equipment is removed, then they're allowed to eat whatever they would like. Sometimes the pill doesn't work and it can get stuck in the GI tract, but that is a rare occurrence. Sometimes we'll have the patient be evaluated to ensure there's no evidence of an area that the pill camp could get stuck in. And um, that's a very rare thing, but it's one of the, the major complications that we worry about with this type of technology. But the pill camera has helped diagnose diseases that used to be more difficult to spot within the GI tract. So there are a few types of diseases that we can now really target, specifically small bowel Crohn's disease, where in the past um, we would have to send the patient for radiation with a special type of x-ray or CT scan. So now we can say, okay, we know you have inflammatory bowel disease in your small bowel. Let's try to target it with this medication. Well, I think that is just fascinating. You can swallow a camera. What, who would have thought? So how many pictures does it take? Well, like, 60,000 pictures over an eight-hour time frame. Wow. But it, it's wonderful technology. They compress the images, and you can read it at different speeds. And when I first started reading this, I felt like I was walking through the small bowel because I had looks. But after a while, your eyes get trained, and, and you can view those images much more rapidly. And we have uh, you know, some things we're looking for, patterns, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So now, how do those images from the camera get like uploaded? Do you have to retrieve the camera? No, no, it's all wirelessly okay. transmitted. So within that little pill, there's a, a camera, um, a flash, the battery, and then the wireless transmitter as well. And then it goes to just like a, a giant um, little box and then we download it. So it's really fascinating technology and it's been really helpful. They have a CT uh, colon, or excuse me, a pill camera for the colon that they're trying. It is approved, but no one in this area does it. And it does not have quite the um, capability of looking in all the corners of the, the colon, unlike the, the pill cam yeah. for the small bowel. Because how long is a small bowel? I mean, it's... Well, at least it varies for a person. 12 feet that we can't reach with yeah. the scopes. Mm -hmm. 12 to 16. I, I can't imagine. Because I was, was, when I was doing colonoscopies, I'm like, yeah, the scope's about as long as you are tall. Yeah. So that's a long just for the colon. I can't mm -hmm. imagine... Yes. That's why we can't see the small bowel right. any other way. Things get very looped up, and um, there are a few special tools where, say, if I find something, um, we can send them off to an even larger medical center like Mayo Clinic or University of Nebraska, where they do these specialized studies where they will use a balloon to kind of stabilize the scope. They inch forward, deflate a balloon, inflate another one. And um, it's called a double balloon enteroscopy, okay. and that was created in, in Japan in the 2000s. And, it's very, very specialized. Again, no one in our region does that. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So what happens to the camera when it's done? <laughs> it just passes. Some okay. people will see it, some will not. Some don't. Okay. And just flush it down the toilet. We do not need it back. Do not go looking for it. <laughs> no. Do not retrieve it. You yeah. don't need that as a souvenir. No. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, a caller from Sioux Falls asked, she's been diagnosed with a problem with her liver. Is there anything um, that helps promote better liver health? Is, far as how does that affect the GI tract? Well, with liver, the main thing, we, we never want to pour fuel into a fire. And the biggest one in our society is alcohol. So really trying to eliminate any alcohol at all um, is very important. 
Keeping weight down is also important. We now know that uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is one of the major reasons for cirrhosis or scarring end-stage liver disease in this country. And it's on the rise for liver transplants simply by having a fatty liver. So keeping your weight down, making smart dietary choices, avoidance of alcohol. Um, but there's nothing really, not a magic pill, unfortunately, that one can take to really help promote liver health. So, and I did have a great call on the radio show that I promised I would ask, mm -hmm. so hopefully they're tuning in. Um, patient stated that they had their gallbladder removed about a year ago, and now they're having sudden urges where they have to run to the bathroom, mm -hmm. and they're having diarrhea. Why and what can be done about it? Sure, so this is called bile salt diarrhea. Extremely common after the first six months to about a year after um, the gallbladder comes out. The liver makes bile to help with digestion. And the gallbladder actually, it serves a purpose. Some of us think, oh, it doesn't need to be there. But the gallbladder acts like a governor to squirt out the, it's storing the bile and it squirts out the perfect amount with each meal. So when people eat meals that are higher in fat, that liver is making a lot of bile and it's going right through a person. So a person will start to have a lot of urgency and irritation because of that bile. What can you do? Give it some time and patience, avoid highly fatty food, but there is a medication, a powder, colostyramine or Questran, that can help to bind up bile. It's a great medicine, but you have to be really careful with timing of the medicine because it can bind up your medicines that you take. So you have to be kind of cautious with that. But if this is continuing, even despite some dietary changes, um, I would definitely go see your primary care physician and he or she can help get you on that right medication. Know that it will get better. Good. There we go, much better and more eloquent than I could answer. So I'm glad you are here. Uh, viewer says they just completed an antibiotic treatment for their small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Does this usually cure it? And what other recommendations would they have for that problem? Yeah, most people will do very well. And we'll have probably a 75 to 80% of people will respond to that. I would give it a little bit of time. There are some patients who will need another round of that antibiotic. So if symptoms start to come back, definitely call your physician and they can try another round of that same antibiotic or a different antibiotic. Very rarely are we have some patients who will need some recurrent antibiotic dosing. I remember even in fellowship, we had some patients who took one antibiotic pill uh, three weeks out of every month to kind of stabilize their gut, um, balance the microbiome. Um, but most people should do very well with that. Probiotics after an antibiotic for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, still no great science behind that. All right, so, um, oh, this is a great question. Um, they said, viewers said they were placed on a low FODMAP diet, F-O-D-M-A-P, about a year ago, still having all their irritable bowel symptoms is it just irritable bowels or something else going on? So FODMAPS is a, a low fermentable food diet. So we're trying to take out the major irritants to the gut. And it's really only intended for four weeks. You're supposed to try that diet for four weeks. You add the food groups back in and see if you can find any triggers. So I would tell that patient, if you've been strict on a FODMAPS diet, I, I applaud you because it's a very challenging diet, very restrictive. And yes, I would worry that maybe something else is going on or are there other alternatives? So if this is a diarrhea type issue, can we put you on some medication to help? Do you need a colonoscopy? Do you need breath testing? I think there might be uh, other explanations as to why that person is still struggling. Yeah, and can you explain a little bit between irritable bowel and like the inflammatory bowels? Because sure. they, they sound similar, but yeah. they're No, very different. different. So irritable bowel means change in stool pattern. And normal is three bowel movements per day to three per week. 
Um, so a change in stool pattern associated with abdominal pain, pain that typically gets better after a bowel movement. Um, in addition, stools that are associated with a sensation of incomplete evacuation, you're not emptying completely, you're spending a longer time in the bathroom, or you're having urgency. So there's irritable bowel, which is diarrhea predominant, and some who have constipation, and then some who have what are called mixed. That is common, one out of 10. We'll have IBS at some point in life. The hard part is we really don't know why people get it. Is it due to diet? Is there something going on with our gut microbiome? Is it our brain is interpreting signals in a different way? Is stress playing part of it? We don't know. Inflammatory bowel disease, though, is very different. So this is an autoimmune type disease where the body decides to attack itself. Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis are the two different types of inflammatory bowel disease. Um, Crohn's disease, patchy ulceration from the mouth to the anus. Ulcerative colitis starts at the anus, works upward, and that's a continuous, so it's not patchy disease. Those two diseases are associated with colon cancer, bleeding, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. So a very different thing, and they're genetic. We know there's over like 126 different areas on our genes that are associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So mm -hmm. a lot. And inflammatory bowel diseases, what sort of treatments would people use for those? There's lots of different types. Um, if you are lucky, there are, for mild disease, we have oral topical medicines. And I tell patients they're like little dipping dots. Um, they adhere to the lining of the colon and they treat locally. Um, if you're in more of the moderate to severe category, now we talk about suppressing your immune system or we talk about suppressing a very specific part of your immune system. I say we try to get the sharpshooter that's causing you all the problems. And those are medicines that you probably see on nightly TV because they're the new ones, they're expensive, but they're extremely effective. And we now, by using those more aggressive medications, we're preventing, thankfully, colon cancer and cancer of the small bowel. A lot of those, the injectable ones, is that? Yep, they're injectable. Mm -hmm. um, some are every other week, some are once every two months. There are some that are infusions as well, where you go every eight weeks and get an infusion, or every six weeks. It just depends, yes. And there's more of those very specific medications um, coming out. Excellent, so there's hope. So a caller from Spearfix asks, can the pill camera be, can the pill camera be used to find diverticulitis? Well, um, if we use a CT, um, uh, excuse me, if we use a pill camera designed for a colon, and so again, we don't use that, it would probably be easier to just get a good old-fashioned CT scan, CAT scan of the abdomen and pelvis. So it'll show up on just a plain old CT scan. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we see it with colonoscopies a yes, lot too. So absolutely. I'm, I'm guessing they're wanting to get out of the colonoscopy to find it. I think it. you're right. <laughs> so yes, it'd be nice if you could just swallow a pill, but all right, a quick question. Can iceberg lettuce cause diarrhea? Absolutely. Um, and it's really interesting because patients who every January, February, they're on this great healthy kick. They come into my clinic in March. It's always March. And I'm struggling, I'm struggling. Well, what have you done with your diet? Well, I'm just eating lettuce all the time, fresh fruits, vegetables. And I applaud them for that. I mean, that's mm -hmm. wonderful. But yes, iceberg lettuce is notorious for causing lots of diarrhea. Interestingly, like spinach and romaine, not as much. So yeah, there's okay. actual science behind that. All right, so would you use that for constipation too? Like we use prunes? And... Oh, that's a great idea. I tell people peaches, pears, and prunes, nature's mm -hmm. laxatives, take some of that every day. Um, you know, that little Del Monte cup when it's not in season, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They, it, it, it's amazing how much prune juice can really help people, and it that's works. a pretty safe way to naturally treat Absolutely, absolutely, yep. yeah. So, all right, uh, viewer says they've been suffering with excruciatingly painful bleeding hemorrhoids for months. 
Uh, what would they recommend to heal or cure that? Um, I would probably say if it's something that is so painful, it's affecting your life, you can't sit, you can't, you're, you're worried about your occupation, please see your local surgeon. He or she can help you out with that, and um, probably it's time for excision or banding. Um, those are things that I don't do, but a surgical specialist will. Yeah, so, all right. A uh, caller from Sioux Falls says they've been diagnosed with candida, and do you have any recommendations for treatment of that? So the most common cause of uh, or type of candida I see is within the esophagus, and that's fairly common as well. One out of 100 will have that. Um, and so we use basics, which is diflucan, fluconazole, um, nystatin swish and swallow, so actually treating it medically. Now, if you've been told you have high candida levels um, or suffer from that um, perhaps with some different types of gynecologic swabs, that's a different treatment. Mm -hmm. yes. And I'd leave that up to your, your yeah. OBGYN so or your family. depending on where it's at. Exactly. <laughs> so GI tract versus vaginal mm -hmm. versus yes. thrush. Yes, absolutely. I mean, all, so you can get it in multiple different mm -hmm. places. So, all right. And a viewer from Millbank, is there an over-the-counter medication that helps with excessive gas? I know in primary care I get asked that a lot about oh. gas and bloating. Oh yeah, it's so, so common. Um, sure, you can start with gas X. So those tiny little you know, baby drops that mm -hmm. you would give to your baby for colic, um, they have pills. You can have two or three of them with meals. Beano is another one. Try lactate as well if your gas and bloat is due to lactose intolerance. So you could start off by trying those. They're all very safe, effective. Um, there's Ibergard, which is another type of uh, safe medicine that can help with some upset stomach gas as well. Okay, so gas and bloating. What about other non-medication things like activity, exercise? I mean, just, I mean, with babies, I would like you know rub the tummy, bicycle yes. the legs, movement. Is that absolutely? Um, you know, even something as simple as you know after meals, standing up, walking around for ten minutes after we eat. Um, being active, getting the 10,000 steps a day, also keeping your stools regular. So mm -hmm. making sure that when you are moving your bowels, you're emptying out completely so that gas is not building up behind the stool. Yeah. So, and is the Squatty Potty commercials, is that really as wonderful as it says? It's true. Yeah, okay. it, it absolutely, and there, and there are signs behind that. Mm -hmm. And so by changing the angle of that anal rectal junction down below in the pelvis, it can help facilitate help, a bowel help relax movement. that yes, muscle that's exactly. kinking. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Excellent. So it, it's not hype, it actually no, no, can the, help. the late night commercial is true. All right. <laughs> so a caller is wondering if Americans have more GI problems than other countries. Um, I think yes, and it's probably related to our diet, and okay. so it's um, it's an unfortunate thing. So yeah, if we go to Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, we go to Asia, um, their GI tract problems are different, but they're not as common. So yes, we uh, struggle a lot with digestive issues in our country, and unfortunately, a lot of it is related to diet. So more processed foods, chemicals, preservatives, all or? of the above. All of the above. Mm -hmm. All right. So well, I think that is been fascinating. There have been so many things that uh, we've gotten to talk about from literally um, the, the top to the bottom. So any other last things you want to make sure that our viewers know? Well, I would reiterate what Dr. We said. If you are 45, please go and get your colon cancer screening. A lot of different ways to do it. There are probably 40% in the state who are not getting screened for colon cancer. 
insurance covers it. If you don't have insurance, we have lots of programs where we can help for getting you in to get that colon cancer screening. It saves lives. Yes, definitely. And that's what we want. You want to, I always tell people the sooner we can find a cancer, the more likely we are to treat it, the more likely we are to cure it. And that is can make the difference between a stage one cancer and a stage four is a big difference in your likelihood to become a survivor instead of a statistic. Yes, so. completely agree. Yes, definitely. So, well, this has been a fascinating evening with lots of topics that we've talked about, and I am so grateful that you were able to come up here well, and help. You. Welcome back to Brookings. Uh, well, thank you. It's great so, to be on. Yes. So, well, thank you so much, um, and I'm sure Dr. Holm is watching down uh, from heaven because you had a lot of. I, he was a wonderful mentor, mentor. and uh, really for a lot of healthcare professionals throughout the state. So yes. very grateful for my time with Rick. Excellent. Well, the winner for our prize tonight is Wilma from Hitchcock, South Dakota. Thank you, Wilma, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be back after this. In healthcare, misinformation can be as deadly as the most serious disease and spread just as quickly. For 21 seasons, the Prairie Doc organization has provided health information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Medical professionals from your own communities volunteer each week to answer your questions. There is no cost to call in or to watch our shows. Follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. People often talk about having a gut feeling when they know something is wrong. But what feelings come when there is something wrong with the digestive system itself? And how do you differentiate between butterflies acting up and a serious gastrointestinal problem? There are many different organs that can cause GI problems and may include the esophagus, stomach, small intestine, and large intestine. The esophagus is the tube that connects the mouth to the stomach. The most common issue people have with the esophagus is acid reflux or heartburn. Reflux is a burning sensation in the chest and frequently includes the taste of acid in the back of the throat. Occasional heartburn can be a nuisance, but chronic heartburn can lead to damage to the cells in the esophagus and cause them to change in appearance. This change makes them more likely to develop into cancer over time. A common stomach issue is ulcers, or an erosion of the lining of the stomach. Ulcers are painful, and the pain worsens after eating due to stomach acid being released during digestion. Ulcers are often caused by the bacteria H. pylori that your doctor can test for. The small intestine connects the stomach and the large intestine and is the longest part of the digestive system. This organ is also where most of the nutrients from your food are absorbed. Issues with the small intestine can lead to diarrhea, malnutrition, and bleeding, which could result in anemia. Problems with the small intestine can not only result in discomfort, but can also contribute to nutritional problems that can affect the rest of the body. Celiac disease, Crohn's disease, and small intestine bacterial overgrowth all affect the small intestine. These disorders can cause abdominal pain, severe diarrhea, fatigue, 
weight loss, and malnutrition. The colon or large intestine can suffer from irritable bowel syndrome. Irritable bowel syndrome, or IBS, is not fully understood, but is thought to be at least partially caused by an abnormality in the brain-gut interaction. It can lead to diarrhea, constipation, or a mixture of both. It also causes cramps, bloating, excessive gas, and abdominal pain. Another large intestinal issue is diverticulitis, which results when pockets in the colon, called diverticula, become inflamed and infected. Often, individuals with diverticulitis have left lower abdominal pain, fever, nausea, and vomiting. As you can see, there are many different complex conditions that can cause your gut to give you all the feelings. And many of these conditions have overlapping signs and symptoms. If you have any concerns regarding your gastrointestinal tract, you should talk to your primary care doctor. They can help direct you for further testing, which may include referral to a gastroenterologist or a surgeon. Most importantly, remember to listen to what your gut is telling you so you can start feeling better soon. Well, thank you to our guest, Dr. Hill Jensen, for volunteering her time to help us learn more about gastrointestinal issues. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube. Visit us at prairiedoc.org and look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper or online. And be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Information based on science, built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Suicide and suicide attempts cause serious emotional, physical, and economic impacts. Suicide is preventable and everyone has a role to play to save lives and create healthy, strong individuals, families, and communities. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc. Effective use of information is the foundation of modern public health practice. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City, and I serve as a volunteer board member for the Healing Words Foundation, the 501c3 that supports the Prairie Doc Media. Prairie Doc programming is designed to improve health literacy, including improving knowledge which is conducive to individual and community health. Founded by Rick and Joni Holm, Prairie Docs and other medical professionals volunteer many hours every week to share information based on science, built on trust. Thank you for following Prairie Doc Media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Plus, catch us most Thursday nights at 7 p.m. on SDPB. Because of your generous donations, all Prairie Doc programming is free and available to the public. If so inclined, make a donation today please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and click the donate button. Don't wanna donate online? Send us an email and our staff will send you a pledge card in the mail. Thank you for supporting the Prairie Doc. 
information based on science, built on trust. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings, Madison, Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.